turn in the scriptures to Ezekiel chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 21 verses, but focusing on verses 15 through 21. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Budzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning." Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. 
Whenever I tell people that I'm working, doing work in Ezekiel, one of the most common questions I get is, what's the deal with the wheels? What are they doing there? What do they mean? Why does Ezekiel get this vision? So I thought we would take a look at that this morning. Ezekiel is trained as a priest. The 30th year of verse 1 is almost certainly the 30th year of Ezekiel's own life, which was the year a priest entered into service as a priest of the Lord Most High in the temple. So Ezekiel trains his whole life to be a priest, and at his 30th year, he gets whisked off to Babylon to serve as a prophet. Not what he was trained to do. But that's very important to what is going to be communicated in chapter 1 to Ezekiel and why he needs this vision. This is a vision for Ezekiel. He's the one who needs this. Well, the wheel has always stood for mobility. The ability to get from point A to point B. If you want to get somewhere, wheels are your friends. For teenagers, turning 16, wheels mean a certain amount of independence. And even with younger children than 16 years old, wheels mean speed and transportation, such as bicycles or inline skates. For the senior citizen, they mean self-reliance and the maintenance of their independence. They don't wish to be limited to one spot or confined course, the wheel has been around for a very long time. There is evidence to suggest the wheel was invented in the fourth millennium B.C., 6,000 years ago. We take wheels for granted today. They're everywhere, and we don't often think about them. I'm sure, however, that after seeing this vision, Ezekiel both never took wheels for granted again and never saw wheels in quite the same light again, if you'll pardon the pun. The fact of the matter is that God has got wheels. And that's the point of the wheels. The implications of that fact were amazing for Ezekiel and helpful for us. Now, Ezekiel describes these four living creatures as angels... Their job is to hold up the throne that you see in verses 22 through 25. And in the previous passage, then, the angels signified the movement of God from the land of Israel to join the exiles. Now, for a priest who understands the glorious presence of God to be located in Jerusalem, the idea that the glorious presence of God would pick up and leave from Jerusalem to Babylon would have been an enormous shock to him. He knew where God and humanity met together. The temple, Jerusalem. Now, however, he has his entire world turned upside down. But he would need that change in his views. Because the Lord was about to commission him to be a prophet to the people of Israel in exile. What is God saying by saying he's mobile? <coughs> he's mobile. 
He's not just with the exiles. He's with Ezekiel. There's one wheel for each living creature. Four wheels. They're colorful wheels. Verse 16 says they were the color of beryl. Now, beryl comes in a variety of colors, but the most common color for beryl is sea green. And emeralds, incidentally, are a form or a kind of beryl. Beautiful in appearance. Verse 18 says the wheels or the rims of these wheels also were exceedingly high. Gargantuan wheels. And they're, they're complicated wheels. Verse 16 says that their appearance was like that of a wheel within a wheel. Scholars have long puzzled over that description. They wonder what it means. And the saying has sort of become a proverb for a complicated situation. Wheels within wheels, right? Possibly we are meant to think of a gyroscope. But it's also possible that the two wheels are set at right angles to each other so that one wheel can go north and south, the other wheel can go east and west, the end result being that they can go wherever they want to go without turning, as verse 17 makes plain. Well, how would that work? Maybe these wheels are somewhat similar to the droid BB-8 in Star Wars Episodes 7 to 9. There's a very interesting website out there called HowBB8Works.com, which not only explains how they built the droid, that's not a computer-generated image, it's an actual droid, but how it runs. And when you look on that website, it has wheels within wheels. And that droid can go anywhere it wants to without really turning. Now, of course, we have to be careful here. BB-8 is a cute little astromech droid. What Ezekiel sees is massively huge to the point of being awe-inspiring. But maybe, just maybe, they worked in a somewhat similar way. Now, if you haven't seen Star Wars Episodes 7 through 9, ask your children and grandchildren about it, or basically anyone under the age of 20. I'm sure they'll be able to fill you in. But the most important thing these wheels say is something about God's particular presence. Now, we make a distinction in the Bible between the fact that God is present everywhere and then His special glorious presence, such as filled the temple with smoke, as Isaiah would put it. So there's two ways we can talk about God's presence. This is what we're talking about, the the specialized, localized presence of God. God is sending a very powerful message to Ezekiel. He is with the exiles in Babylon, and he is not tied down to any one place on earth. Now, of course, for us who are a highly mobile, upward society, that doesn't seem to mean all that much. But in ancient Near Eastern thought, each country had its own God, and that God stayed in that country. It didn't go anywhere else. So God is not only saying, I'm not limited to Israel, and I'm not only the God in control of Israel, I'm the God in charge of all of the countries of the earth. He can go anywhere he wants. 
So what we've seen here is that wheels mean mobility. The glory of God is mobile. But there's two other aspects of these wheels that we need to point out. We see that these wheels are covered with eyes. And an initial reading of that makes it sound really creepy. Wheels with eyes on it. Now, there is some debate here as to whether it means actual eyes or the gleam of light that is on something shiny. Ezekiel's language could actually mean either one. But it seems more likely that Ezekiel actually does mean eyes here. If the wheels actually looked like barrel, then they weren't terrifically shiny. Barrel is not the most sparkling gem on the planet. So it seems more likely, actually, that eyes are being meant here. Ezekiel, then, is seeing a vision that is full of symbols. So we ask, what do eyes mean? Well, the obvious thing, they mean sight, the ability to see. If you have eyes that work, it means you can see. Now, that's a dreadfully obvious point to make. But in Ezekiel's context, it would have needed to be said if, as Ezekiel used to believe, God was limited somehow in where he could appear. Then he also might draw a corresponding incorrect conclusion about what God himself could see. So if God can go anywhere, then what goes along with that is that God can see anywhere. And those two ideas certainly belong together, do they not? If God is everywhere, God sees everything. So this vision teaches us not only that God is the God over all of the earth and he is therefore sovereign, but he is also as theologians would say, omniscient, knowing everything, seeing everything. Omnipresence implies omniscience. The third symbol we see here that it's important is the source of power for these wheels. Verses 20 and 21 tell us that the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels, uh, this could mean that the Holy Spirit was involved making the wheels go, or, or it could mean that the angels as spiritual beings were in the wheels. That doesn't make a whole lot of difference for our purposes. God's presence and his power are there in either case. But what is remarkable about this aspect of the vision is that Ezekiel can tell that the spirit of the living creatures is in the wheels. How would you be able to see that and know that that was the case? We don't exactly know that. How it is that Ezekiel could tell. But verses 20 and 21 make this quite plain. The spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. In other words, there was a spiritual power making the wheels be able to go absolutely anywhere they wanted to go. And wherever the four living creatures went, the wheels went. They were not connected by means of an axle, like modern wheels are. They're connected by means of the spirit of the living creatures. And that's how they moved at the same time. So that raises the question then. This is an old 
revelation made to a single person, Ezekiel, why is it in the Bible, and why is it relevant to us? Well, the first and most important point is that God's glory is, in fact, transportable, mobile. God's glory can move from Jerusalem to the river Kabar in, in Babylon, or it could move from heaven to earth in a small baby born in Bethlehem. It can move from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. It can move inside people who are transported where God wants them to be. And it doesn't just move itself then. God's glory can move other things, can move other people. It can move a person's heart from death to life. So it's more than awe that we should feel on reading this, about this incredible vision that Ezekiel saw. It's that this text is wanting us to experience the soul-transforming power of God's glory at work in our lives. And when that happens, we become mobile as well. We become transmitters of God's glory. The glory that he has worked in our lives and wants to become visible to others. He's made his glory not just mobile, but spreadable. Have we been transformed? And are we transmitting that glory to others? Secondly, recognize that, yes, God has eyes everywhere. This is not always a terrifying thing. I want to start with the positives on this one. You see, God sees when Christians are persecuted. He takes note. And even though there might not be immediate justice that happens, justice will come nonetheless. When we say that he sees things then, we are not saying that God is merely a cosmic spectator sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, just wishing he could do something about it. God often intervenes. And even if he does not immediately intervene, he keeps track, so we don't need to. We don't need to fear whether justice will take place or not. We can count on it. His eyes can protect. And we need many forms of protection, and not just from physical harm. We need protection from false doctrine, false practice, <coughs> and even sometimes protection from ourselves. <coughs> We don't always know what is best for us. Isn't it a good thing that we have a God who does know what is best and is always looking out for us? He picks better than we would. I remember well the story as it was related to me of James Montgomery Boyce, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, when he was diagnosed as having the final stages of cancer, had six weeks left to live. And his first words out of the pulpit the next Sunday were these. If God does something in your life, would you change it? 
Would you change it? Powerful words. And he died six weeks later. Oftentimes we trust humans to look out for us, but humans fail at this too. We don't always exercise good judgment. We fail to see the dangers. We fail to protect. Isn't it comforting to know that we have a God who does the protecting? There's nothing that can take God by surprise. Most of the time, though, we want to be comfortable. We want to be happy. Happiness and comfort are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves if we don't make them the ultimate goal of our life. The problem, though, comes when we look for happiness and comfort in our circumstances instead of where we should find it, which is in God Himself. And even then, comfort and happiness are really byproducts of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. These other things are added things, not the main thing. Do we really desire to live as Sproul so often put it, coram Deo, before the face of God? Then we live as people who know God sees all things, directs all the good, all the painful things, the things that make us comfortable, the things that are painful, and we really need to believe God is wiser than we are. Of course, the more fearful aspects of that vision can help us avoid sin and temptation. God does see our every action, word, and thought. There's nothing that we can hide from Him. Oftentimes we know that, but sometimes if there's no immediate retribution that comes our way or discipline, then we think we've gotten away with something, don't we? That will not help us. We should be more ashamed that we have sinned before God than when our sin is found out by other human beings, but all too often it's the reverse, isn't it? We're fine with God knowing because it's God. And isn't it His job to forgive sins? As if He owed us something? So we just go on sinning, resting in the thought that our sin will be forgiven, hoping no one will find out. It's a perilous place to be. We'd be presuming. We'd also be shortchanging God's grace, which is not just about forgiveness. God's grace changes us on the inside. And God doesn't forgive us only to let us then go and do our own thing as if nothing else has changed. And that's important to remember because Paul says, should we sin so that grace may abound? Heaven forbid, Paul says. When we get up in the morning... Our thoughts should be that the Lord will help us live every moment of the day before the face of God. At night, do we ask ourselves, how have I lived before the face of God? But even the scarier things about God seeing all things can come right back around in the end to comfort us. Isn't it amazing? that God sees right down to the very bottom of our corrupt hearts and loves us anyway? He sees every thought, word, deed, loves us. 
Some people will say, God loves us just the way we are, as if that's an excuse for avoiding change. I think Sinclair Ferguson puts it better. He loves us in spite of the way we are, and then he changes us. That's what's so amazing about grace, isn't it? He sees the deepest, darkest secrets of our heart and loves his children anyway. You see, we don't just, we're not just undeserving of grace. Of course, you can't deserve grace. That would be an oxymoron. But it's not just that we've done nothing to deserve it. We've actually done the opposite, right? We've demerited grace. Grace is not just unmerited favor. It's demerited favor. If that grace isn't amazing enough to humble us to the dirt, what could do it? That he could see everything and forgive it. Well, why can he? Because the blood of Christ is more powerful than any sin. That's why. But you know, many people don't really want all that. They don't want to come face to face with that. They don't even like the idea of true grace. Isn't it astounding? You'd think people would say, boy, I'd love to have that fresh, clean feeling of being forgiven. But natural human beings don't want that. Because it means they owe God something. They don't want to owe God anything. They want God to owe them something. Of course, if their every breath is a gift from God, they can't really do that, can they? But they try to escape. They think they can flee to the othermost parts of the earth that God will not find them. They think they can escape these wheels. They think they can escape the glory of God. There's no place on earth where God's vision will not see. So we should not try. And when we do not try to escape, but when we put ourselves and entrust ourselves to the Lord God, we'll find that His grace is far more amazing and wonderful than we could ever have imagined. Surrender the throne of your life. Don't be like the man who said, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, William Ernest Henley, Invictus, a poem probably many of us are familiar with, or the famous song, I did it my way. I don't want to do it my way. I'll mess it up. Surrender. Surrender to the grace of God, and you'll find your life forever changed. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the grace that goes everywhere, sees everything, and forgives us anyway. That you forgive us in spite of who we are, in spite of all we've done, in spite of what is in our heart, because the blood of your Son has infinite cleansing power. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood separated from his body as we will celebrate shortly at the Lord's table. 
We thank You for the glory that You have, that You have made mobile on earth, that You have made transforming in people's lives. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for all of these things that can transform us into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. For it is in His name we pray these things. Amen.